Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, or click your Bibles if you're a young, modern, digital Bible person. Uh, we're going to pick up in the middle of chapter 10. We're going to actually pick up in verse 25, which is in the mid- literally in the middle of a sentence. So I want to just take a second and get, refresh our memories from last week. Um, if, in verse 19, it starts with the word therefore, because it is an absolute hinge in the book of Hebrews the epistle of Hebrews, that everything leading up to verse 19 is an explanation of Jesus as high priest that allows us to enter the presence of God. We can come together as a church uh, into the body of Christ and we can do it without fear. Can you imagine like the priests of old had to be fearful when they came into the presence of God because if they didn't do everything right, they could be killed. Yet we get to come into the presence of God and sing his praises like we just did and we almost take it for granted that we can at any time we want pray and enter the presence of God without the fear of being zapped on sight for our unholiness. Like what an open door we have. Then verse 21 started with the three therefores. Because of that concept, we can, verse 21, draw near and we can be covered and washed. Like we can go get baptized and we can just do it. Um, That's why I wore my shirt. Verse 23, we hold fast not only drawing near to God, but holding fast to God. And as a church, as an American church, we forget that. It's not just about a confession. It's about actually entering into a family and being part of a a body or to have a hope that doesn't waver. You have to hang around with other believers. And then verse 24, really interesting third command, consider one another. If God is God, if Jesus is Jesus, if he's rose from the dead and has become our high priest and we are sub-priests underneath Jesus with a holy calling, we are called to draw near, hold fast, consider one another. And honestly, people say sometimes, I'm a believer and I don't know what God's calling me to. And it's like, okay, he just tells you what you're called to. This is the calling. It's not anything bigger or fancier than that. The calling is to draw near, hold fast, consider one another. In this passage, that's what we're commanded to do. Plenty of other passages with other commands, but if you want a good starting point, that's a good starting point. If Jesus is your God, then do these three things. And there's this amazing thing. So last week we dug in hard on drawing near, holding fast, and considering one another. Um, and, And this idea that people sometimes can jump ahead of those three things and go off and try to do things before they do the basics. And if you don't do the basic, nobody wants to hear the things. It's just really simple. And each of these started with the foundational words, let us. And nobody liked my joke about vegetables, but it says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. There's a progression to these things. One has to happen first. If you're not considerate, nobody cares what you say about love or really accepts your good works because you're not even being considerate of others. You're not even tuning in to what they need and what they're up to at the time. So it's what we call in, in today, we call that being rude. You're just being impolite. You're putting your own agenda ahead of other people. So that's where we pick up. Consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So this comes with the idea of considering one another, to consider one another and assemble ourselves And then it has exhorting one another. Do you hear the repetition? Us, us, one another, for ourselves. There's plural here. When people become Christians as individuals, there is a transition to not being an individual anymore, but being part of a body. And it is absolutely the structure and organization God put. And he organized that. 
we have an entire three generations worth of people that think their faith is all about them and that it's an individual behavior, but they're not tuning in to how the Bible frames it. You individually choose to follow Jesus as your king, and then you join the army. And when you join the army, you become part of a body, part of a group of people that do things together. And it's this, fest, this idea of exhorting one another and doing it as a team. The work of the believer seems to be in community. In fact, it's our endeavor. Uh, it, it, the fixation is on us, and our attention is on us. And this sounds very socialistic and communistic, but I think the communists twist this because this is a Christian concept first, this idea of working as a team, right? And, and it's not a political thing. It's a very spiritual behavior and a family-like behavior. Ephesians 4 verse 1 puts this really well. Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called, individual, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, plural. See the shift? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So where's my attention as a believer? What do I focus on? I focus on how to make peace with you. How do I just have a joyful relationship? And sometimes that means a compliment and lifting you up. Sometimes it means a rebuke to pull you down. But to have peace, that even pace. And out of love we do that even when it's difficult. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all who's above all and through all and in you all. Do you see the transition? There's only one shepherd and that's Jesus and the rest of us follow. So getting back to our verse, not forsaking uh, the assembling of ourselves. That it's My point is, that's a big deal. It's not a little deal or a passive thing or a thing we do when we feel like it. It's a thing we endeavor to, we fixate on. The word forsake is to abandon. It means what we think it means. But the interesting connotation in the Greek is that it means to cripple someone or leave them helpless. So when you forsake the assembly, you're crippling the assembly. You're leaving it helpless. You have something God's called you to be in that body. You have something to offer. The assembly word is an interesting word that they're using there because typically in the Greek, for assembly or to gather together, you'd use the word synagogue, right? That's, you know, it's, the idea of that is the synagogue, the gathering, the assembly. To do anything you do, you would, you would do that and you would assemble. You would synagogue with people to get things done. So if we're to endeavor to keep the unity of the Holy Spirit, and this is being written by, frankly, the greatest missionary the world's seen. If you take Jonah out of the equation, Paul is arguably one of the greatest missionaries we've ever seen. But he tells us that the endeavor and focus should be on the body. That seems so backwards. Shouldn't the endeavor and focus to be out getting non-believers and bringing them to the church? So how does this all mechanically work, right? So it's, it's a weird thing. It's an arrogance that we have. Isaiah talked about the arrogance of somebody saying, well, I don't really need synagogue. I'm, I'm above that. Or I don't like synagogue. And, and, and you're here, so you put up with a lot of things that aren't synagogue-like by our modern culture's definition of what a church should look like. So this maybe isn't a message for us, but there's still that idea of individualism, that, that it's somehow our choice or our pick. And it is at some level. You're morally responsible for who you synagogue with, um, but that idea of Isaiah 43, 22 saying, you've not called upon me, O Lord, O Jacob, or you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I've not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have brought me no sweet cane with money. You have not satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and you wearied me with your iniquities. That's God talking to the people of God. When you're coming, you're just coming with your own garbage all the time. And there is a point where God himself says that's wearisome to him. He's luckily patient and graceful, and there's other passages that talk about despite all of that, he puts up with us. But he does point it out through Isaiah that there is a point where people come with their own agenda all the time. That's wearisome to God himself because he's got an agenda for us to follow. He's got a will for us. You know? And it's fun when we start to feel that together as a group. Um, but to forsake, to be weary, to fail to honor, to fail to worship is actually a sin. 
And I think that's an important thing to note. The way I, God sets that up with Isaiah is when you forsake the assembling, and I'll get to the word assembling here in a second. When you forsake that, it's actually a sin. It's a burden to God because you're calling him your Lord, but you don't show up for roll call. Well, is he really your Lord or are you serving whatever took you away from that roll call? And I'm hitting it hard because Hebrews is hitting it hard. Is our God worthy of your time or not? And if it's still even a competition, you got some heart work to do. And if that offends, you're welcome. Has God failed you in some way, shape, or form? Has he let you down in some way, shape, or form? If he hasn't, don't mistake that that consideration and patience of God is an acceptance of you putting yourself at his level. It's not. It's a scary thing to think about. But love and good works in our passage are within the church. The command here is to do love and good works within the consideration of the body. And this isn't an argument against other things, but it is a passage about how we act within the body, within the synagogue. The word assembling there, again, it's not synagogue. In the Greek, it's episynagogue. He adds a, a, a what do you call the thing you put in front of a word? Prefix? Prefix. He adds a prefix. Episynagogue. I was not a language arts teacher. Referring to the gathering or worship, the study of prayer, but he at the, the epi, if you just pull that epi part out, because we know synagogue means assembling and gather. The epi part means to build on or an apt fit or a natural connection with synagogue. Episynagogue. The draw near, hold fast, consider one another, do not forsake the natural fit with synagogue. How that naturally connects to what we do. And this is, the, this is good news, folks. This is really easy. It's a lot more easy for me to get to know Michael and know what Michael needs in his life and try to help him however I can. It's natural because we love one another. We have some people that come to our church that maybe annoy you or we annoy each other. It is much harder to do it with people you annoy, but in the church it's natural that we work that out because we're family. You ever have a brother and sister that bugs you? An aunt and uncle? Creepy uncle? You know? <laughs> Kids that bother you? Nephews and nieces? But we work it out because we're family. It's a natural fit that we consider one another within the synagogue, within the assembly. Natural fit. Then it says ourselves together. And I've already talked about solo believers. And just a quick add-on to that. If you're running out into the battle and you look and nobody's behind you, you're not a leader. Right, And if, if you're going out to do the work of God and nobody's alongside you, maybe you're running away from where you should be. Come back home. Come work with the things we're doing. Why is assembling together such a powerful tool for God? What is it about a healthy church that's such a banner, such a light on the hill? Because it's totally unnatural for this world to make this happen. Nobody understands it that isn't walking in the faith. They don't get it. And it's when they see it, and that's the thing, it's like pulling teeth to get them to see it. But when they can see that, it's wonderful. And it says, as is the manner of. So the writer of Hebrews, I think a team, I disagree with the pastors this weekend that said it was just Paul. I think there's a team writing this. But it says, as is the manner of some. It's like a dismissive offhanded statement because it's like there's just people like this. They just exist. They're out there. There's just these people that that forsake the assembling it's not a big deal to them and it, it partially I think because for some people the assembling of the saints is a non-spiritual activity they go out of obligation they go out of duty they go because they, somebody said they had to um, but they can even show up at church and then they never connect with people it's especially pertinent during this COVID situation we've had and because we're talking about the people that forsake the gathering of the saints I'm just going to go at this and I my intent here isn't to be a political be firing up political tendencies I'm just not into that but we should know that the isolation over the last two and a half years has led to an additional 75,000 suicides in our country the isolate it's not even in a secular sense isolation's unhealthy right so this is not, in the 1929 crash the great depression started when the stock market crashed right? Um, this was greater than that by 20 times. So, you know, you hear about the Great Depression and cyber crash, all these people throwing themselves out of buildings, small fraction of the people that committed suicide during COVID. The evil that's happening in our country today is so much worse than what happened back then. It just gets lost because the news doesn't report it. 
Unemployment has gone up 14.7%, and employers can't even get people to come back to work now that COVID's kind of over. Like, you guys know this. It's a disaster out there. The increases, and I, and I won't go through all these numbers, but we've seen increases in depression, drinking and drug addictions, drug overdoses have increased, neurotic and psychotic behavior has increased, and so have mass shootings during that time. People go nuts when they're out on their own. Let's bring it back to the church. Christians that are solo artists go nuts. They get into weird, nutty beliefs. They get into, there's nobody to hold them back. There's nobody to love them. There's no authority or, or oversight. And they're nuts. And they start teaching false things. Don't forsake the assembling of the saints. Don't do it. There's also a spiritual purpose, bringing it back down to coming away from psychology. This is a training ground for us. This is where we create a common discord. When we're reading through the word of God and we read, hold fast, draw near, we're learning language together that we can use to talk to people outside the church with. It is an evangelistic class every week that we're in that helps us live our lives. And if we're doing that right, if God forbid that I'm not teaching the word accurately, then we don't see the natural outpouring or the fruits of the Spirit. It doesn't happen. But the same is on every single one of you and the parts and the roles that you play during a church time on a Sunday. If you're not doing your thing with all your heart, we're not as effective or fruitful as we should be. As is the manner of some. Who are these people? Who are these people? The manner of some. I would say there's three different types that I could think of. There's the lost, the people that say, well, I haven't quite found a church yet. I'm just doing home, my devo devotions at home, or I'm doing the Church of the Open Sky, and that phrase came from me and Steph. We spent five years doing the Church of the Open Sky. So I'm not trying to just accuse. Um, or maybe they're shamed and they can't go into church because they just don't feel like they're such a sinner. They just don't feel like they can walk into a holy place. Wow. I think there's the people that are the thorny, because that's the term Jesus used with the seeds parable. I go whenever I can, but I just got so many things to do. The concerns of the world choke out the necessary parts of their life. And that, that's the thorny. They got to they gotta get out the clippers and hack out some thorns and make room for those things. Matthew 13, 22. And I also think there's the indignant. And this is a growing population. Tell me, afterwards when we chat a little bit, tell me if I'm wrong on this. The church is full of hypocrites and judgmental people, and I just can't be part of that because surely God's not there. And maybe they're right. Maybe they're looking at churches that are absolutely dead and dark places. And how sad is that? We need new churches. There needs to be a renewal, a revival, a refreshing of God's spirit in everything we do. I love God, but I can't handle God's people. Well, you're right. We're all sinners. Maybe we need your help. For each of these types, they're missing that this is a command. Do not forsake. It's a command. They're, they're putting the eye first in all of their thinking. And as the manner of some, these important relationships, it's not just about hearing the word of God. It really isn't. And I love teaching. You guys know that. I love all of you. I care about you. You're my family. But it's not just what I'm doing. It's what we do when we talk over lunch and we hang out. It's what we do when we walk into a building and somebody gives us a hug. It is the welcome and the refuge of the people of God without judgment, without shame, but with grace for all. And that means that we're going to have people in the family that are ab abject sinners struggling with their sin. And we, like family, tell them, you are in sin. We don't kick them out the door. They might not be in leadership anytime soon, right? But we want a place where people can come and, and that they don't have that excuse if people don't love me, right? They're willing to come and hear the word of God. They need to be there. The manner of some is they forget how important relationships are to our faith walk. We don't do this alone, period, as is the manner of some. So as is the manner of some, you know, it's one of those things that I, I just, before I go on to exhorting, um, I'm spending more time on this verse. This is why I stopped last week. Listen to this. There are people that believe that they're more important than the gathering of the saints. Instead of humbling themselves to serving one another, they're more important than that. In that attitude, you're in danger of what I would call lawlessness. You're even divisive because you're coming in with your own thing instead of coming in to serve. 
And l listen to this. This is Jesus talking, Matthew 7, 21. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord. I don't know a lot of sinners and atheists that go around saying, Lord, Lord, and I serve Jesus Christ. The people who say, I serve Jesus Christ, are people coming to church. Not everybody will say to me, Lord, Lord, and shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who dwell does the will of my Father in heaven. Draw near, hold fast, consider one another. That's the will of God. Many say to me that in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? We cast out demons in your name. We did wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I don't know you. Depart from me. Listen, you who practice lawlessness. Do we know people that are running around prophesying in the name of Jesus Christ? I know a couple. I know people that, that believe they do miracles. I know people that cast out demons and they tell stories. They'll come back, hey, Sean, we had this thing, this situation. Some of those people, there is a category of the lawless that believe they're doing everything for the kingdom, but they forgot that part of what God commanded you to do is consider one another in the church. Consider the other people. It's a blessing to my heart. Bonnie, I'm going to pick on you. When Bonnie or Lisa call and say, we're bringing this today for food, that's a consideration. It's, it's, it's a natural, I love you, I care about you. Tom, you brought the chips. We ate all those chips as a body, right? The coffee you bring, we burned through it, man, like faster and faster. Um, those are just little considerations that build the work and keep the people that are doing the work to not burn out because we take hope in the like, well, we had a need and then the need just got met. Praise the Lord. And it's a fire that when you put sticks together, the fire burns bright. When you spread them out around the yard, they smolder, smoke, and die. But when people come together and consider one another, it's wonderful. And the danger of this lawlessness and the high things, prophecy, casting out demons, doing wonders, the danger of that is that it can become a false gospel. That your job is to be out doing wonders instead of to be humbly being part of what you're commanded to do. It's a lawlessness. Nobody sees over what you're doing. And it's the manner of some to be a loose cannon. It's dangerous. They're so convinced their way is right that they're willing, in the Matthew 7 passage, they're willing to argue with God himself. Well, didn't we know you? Think about that. They're arguing with God when they say that. They're so convinced they're serving God, but they never listen to the first things. Love. Love one another. As a body, when we ignore these things, we do it to the, not only the detriments of the body, but we do it to the detriment of ourself. And if it's the opposite of forsaking is to come back together. Back to our verse. There's the manner of some that forsake, but the opposite of that is exhorting one another. It's a core spiritual practice. And that's a command here in this passage. It's a really big term. Like, it's a hard one. In the Greek, it's parakaleo. It's a great term. Parakaleo is to call somebody to your side with the intent to walk together. It's when Danny sets up a hiking trip. She's doing parakaleo. Come walk with me. When we say to a family member, come to church with me, that's parakaleo. We're exhorting them. Why don't we hang out and have some coffee this weekend? Parakaleo. Let's go to the range, shoot some bow and arrow, parakaleo. Let's go to the Renfest together. Let's do these things together. It's walking together through life, parakaleo. It's a wonderful term. It's the, it, it includes both consoling somebody when they're broken and hurting and admonishing someone when they're prideful. That's both parakaleo. And we just use the word exhort, and I think sometimes we think like a word. It's so much bigger than that. It includes the behavior of brothers and sisters towards one another as they're walking together through life. You ever heard a brother and sister argue? My sister and I used to get into it. Parakaleo. Ever heard a brother and sister console each other when there's a deep pain or one of the two breaks up with their boyfriend or girlfriend and the, their siblings right there saying it's okay? Parakaleo. It's how family members treat one another. So exhorting is the core of a relationship between a coach and a guide, both to be coached by other people and to coach other people. And Jesus said that when the end comes, he'll put all the sheep of the church to the right and he'll welcome them into heaven on this premise that they fed, clothed, housed, tended the sick and imprisoned each other, took care of the imprisoned. They didn't imprison each other. 
But that's the condition where he's welcoming people into heaven. Listen to this, Matthew 25, 40. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, insomuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. He's not talking about the world that hates him. He's talking about his brethren, brothers and sisters. When you do things within the church, I think sometimes we diminish how important that is to God. He doesn't need us to be Billy Franklin Graham. He needs us to love one another and be considerate of one another. Think of each other. To love the church, we're actually loving Jesus himself as he called his body itself the church. So when we care for one another, we care for Jesus himself. What a concept. So our commandment is clear. Don't forsake the gathering like some people do, but exhort one another. Come walk with me. Verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, but as the manner of some, but exhorting one another. That's why we gather. That's why we do it every week, so we don't forget each other. It honors God's gift and his covenant when we make that holy and sacred and separate, that that gathering takes priority. Here's the cool thing. This last note on the sentence, verse 25, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, I, we could make this into a prophecy conference, but I, and, but I see the day approaching. I see it coming close. Like they found red heifers in Texas. And for those people into prophecies, that's a big deal. They're, they're setting out sites to build the third temple. For people into prophecy, that's a big deal. We're supposed to, Jesus says he's coming back for his bride, and we're supposed to be ready for that. Every night we go to bed, every day we wake up, every day we walk with him, with him in front of our face, panim, walk before me, he says. The Bible says that some think of the return of Jesus as something where we need to double down on urgency and pushing. But this is the opposite of that. When the day approaches, we're supposed to double down on considering one another and being separate from the world because we love one another. Honestly, everything in my flesh is like, okay, the day is close. i got to go do things. But this is the opposite command of what's in my flesh. It's my flesh is settle down and pay attention. Go out for coffee with people. Make a community of people that are loving and caring. If the body of Christ is our rest, Hebrews chapter 4, then we come here for solace, peace, love, patience, and exhortation. We come here for family, and every generation of Christians for 2,000 years has experienced that beautiful refuge and changed the cultures they've been in. You want to change White Bear, the Twin Cities, Minnesota? Consider one another and do it and make it intentional. And Steph and I went church shopping when we moved back to the metro. We're in a tough town, you guys. I don't see that. We walked into this huge Eagle River, Willow Creek thing, whatever thing over there, and we went in there, and they had this awesome music, and it had sound effects, and people walked in, and then we watched a video of a guy teaching, and then people walked out, and I don't, nobody knows anybody. They're forsaking the assembly. They're forgetting it's not just about the show. It really isn't. And I'm not picking on that, frankly, if we had smoke machines and lights, and I'm cool with all of that, but it's not about that. It really is about the assembling of the saints. And what would happen let's, if we ever grew out of a house and into another place and we had people just walk in and walk out, my heart would be broken because we would have just recreated the same evil that's already out there. I'd just be devastated. It's so much more about family. Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can't have a disciple if you don't know them and meet with them every week. It doesn't exist. Disciples are people that walk together through life. They exhort. Parakaleo. So verses 24 and 25 are central to a philosophy of evangelism, but it's a different kind of evangelism philosophy than some of those that are out there. Come and walk with me. Join my family. Come for refuge. Hear God's word and be blessed. That's an evangelical message. But if you don't experience family, how do you invite people to it? You're just somebody with an opinion. If you don't have a family to bring people home to, like if you got a new girlfriend or boyfriend, it's when it gets serious, that's when you bring them home to meet the family. You got somebody that you're talking about spiritual issues with and faith with, 
boy, that gets serious when you bring them home to your family. I want you to meet my family. That's an evangelical message that expands the church on a regular basis. Listen to this, Acts 2.42. They can, this is the first church example we get. This is the biblical example of church. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. We read the word. And in fellowship. It's right there alongside the study of the word. You can't do fellowship if you've got a parking attendant shooing you out the door in an orderly fashion. Like it felt like a fire escape, you guys. Like we went, I don't know if you've been to those churches, but it was like there was everything but a fire alarm when they finished the service and people just moved out as quick as they could. Maybe it got close to the Vikes game. And so they continued fastly in this apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayers. How many churches eat, break bread together? I mean, that's not talking about communion. That's about having a meal. And that's an important part of what the early church was doing. And in prayers, Lisa and Amy both brought up just that emphasis on prayer. They prayed together. You got a problem? Let's pray. You got a praise? Let's pray. Right? And, and people think you're weird when you bring them home to the family. And my family, just got to warn you before we get there. You say anything, my family wants to pray with you. Just got to warn you before we get there. We study the word, the apostles' doctrine together. We go through it. So I just, you know, like a boyfriend or girlfriend bringing home that you don't want them to be freaked out by your family. But my family does some things different. And it's not to apologize for your family, but it's to prep them before they come. I just want to let you know. This is how that's happening. I'm going to go further down in Acts chapter 2. So continuing daily with one another accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Same idea. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. If nobody's added to the church, the ministry is worthless. I just, I don't know how to say that any clearer than what Hebrews is saying right now and what Acts is saying, what Matthew is saying, what these things are there. We have to think if we're doing anything and we say we're doing it in the name of God, has anybody been added to the family for that activity in the last 20 years? Two years? Two months? Two weeks? How long are we going to do things that don't matter for the kingdom? If nobody's being added to the family, it's an ineffective ministry. It doesn't work. Here's the other thing, verse 47. They, they're praising God. They're singing songs. They're studying the word. They're eating with food of gladness, simplicity of heart. Again, I just think of the, the wee-wahs in the Dr. Seuss story. What did they, were, were they called? The people that... The, the, who's. the who's. I think of the who's down in Whoville, just singing and being joyful and just naive little Christians doing their thing. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. We don't do it. God prepares the soil. He raises the plant. We are fortunate to be part of the harvest. The formula then has changed, I think, in the American church. We've put this idea that getting saved comes first. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I don't need them to be saved to walk in the door, you guys. If you've got an atheist, you've got a Muslim, you got, as long as they're willing to hear the teaching of the word and not be a distraction to the rest of us, they don't need to be saved to walk in this door. My house is open to them. Our house is open to them. They draw near. They hold fast. They consider one another. God adds to our number those who are being saved. I just want to stick to the Bible on that because some of the false teachings are so subtly off of that mark that I have to stop and check my own heart on it. Our job is to watch what God is doing, and that's a good thing. I'm so excited for our family meeting next week. We get to say, here's what the Lord's doing so we can celebrate what he's doing. And that's the plan, right? That is the plan, is to put our own will to the side, to exhort one another, verse 25, consider one another, verse 24, hold fast, verse 23, draw near, verse 22, and then we watch God and we see what he does. If God wants to do a work, great. If he wants to keep our family small, I get more food. I'm happy either way. I'm content with whatever God's put in front of me. So notice there that there's no, this formula in Acts, there's no programming, there's no church planting plan, there's no five-course agenda that you have to go through, there's no gimmicks, there's no tricks, none of that. We invite people, we exhort people to be part of our family, we don't try to convince people of a philosophy. It's different. 
So if we don't enjoy, here's just a thought, and we'll get on to the rest of the chapter. If we don't enjoy each other's company, why would anyone in their right mind want to come hang out with us? I know people that don't want to bring home that new boyfriend or girlfriend because they, their family's a mess. Hey, you don't need to meet my family. I'm a little embarrassed by my family. I don't know if you want to do that. Man, if we feel that way about our body, about our church, why would, any, why would we think anybody would want to come join that? But if we love one another, if we have fun together, if we just eat together simply and joyfully, who in their right mind would not want to be part of that family? Like, honestly, and part of the reason I married Steph was that I loved her family. Honestly. Like, her dad was a gem. And, I'm, and, and as a young man, if I marry Steph, I get Sherm as my dad. That's pretty cool. Now, I love Steph a lot. I didn't even think of Sherm until I had met him. But there is a point where it stops being about the boyfriend or girlfriend, and it starts being about the family. And that... That's how evangelism should work, too. It stops being about you. It starts being about, like, well, if I can hang out with those people, I got some cool brothers and sisters every week. I like that. We got people in our fellowship that came because somebody invited them, somebody moved away, but they're still coming because they're, they're part of the family. Welcome in. That's the body of Christ. That's why we fellowship. That's why we agape feast together. It's why we have fun together. It's why we do things. And let me emphasize this because I think sometimes we feel, I joke about this, like making a pirate boat. And I'll be like, I know that's not ministry. Yes, it, yes, it is. That's why we make pirate boats. That's why we do escape rooms. That's why we do picnics, concerts. That's why we hang out at the state fair and hand out Bibles. It's, we're building the body of Christ. And that's more important now than ever as the day approaches that we as a body are a family and we're tight and we're unified because the culture around us is getting crazy. It's getting crazy. We used to get upset when on I Love Lucy, the married couple slept in the same bed on TV. Now we have people changing their genitalia for fun. And that change has happened so fast. I, I feel really old. But it's more like you don't even have to be old. Like, Seven years ago, we were talking about gay marriage. Now we're talking about marriage not even being real. Like, it's crazy. Even more important as the day approaches. All right, we'll go through the rest of the chapter. Sorry, I just, the vision of church here is so clear. The calling is so clear. And we've spent nine chapters building up to this calling of church. Therefore, if this is the case, this is what you do. If you love God, you do this. Then you get to verse 26. For if we sin willfully, wait a second. Forsaking the assembly is actually a sin? In the context of Hebrews, yeah, it really is. What's the sin? You don't love other people. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, the fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who's rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse is the punishment? And I like this line. Do you suppose? What do you think is going to happen? If you, you, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace? All of this in context of draw near, hold fast, consider one another. Those things don't matter to you. They're not, wor they're not worth your time. The commands of God are somehow beneath you. Watch out. Good luck with that. How do you think that's going to go for you? To know the truth and forsake the fellowship, agape, <laughs> the gathering, it's a serious thing. It's not a light thing. It's a big deal. It's not a little deal. It's who you worship and who you serve. And if you serve God, you do it the right way. The rationale here is that God is serious about his commands. Verse 26, you know the truth. Jesus has consummated the sacrifice. Nothing else does that for you. So if he's done that and, and then you reject the therefore of verse 19, that's equated with sin here. And you should expect judgment, verse 27. In fact, rejecting the gift of Jesus our God and laying down that perfect life of his and that wasn't enough for you? You got other stuff to do? 
you've made something as, as worthwhile as all of those other things on the list. It is possible to act like a Christian without doing the inner work of Christianity. And that's my heart. That's my prayer for you guys. We got Heather in Colorado. She's just praying for every one of you by name. She's a prayer ministry. She's still part of the family. She's just away from us. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and though I have all faith, all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, though I, if I have not have love, it profits me nothing. But I live generously. But I give all my stuff up. But I prophesy. But I do all this stuff. But I sing with the, I have speaking tongues. Who cares? I believe in prophecy. I believe in tongues. I believe in all, I've seen these things done in a good and healthy and godly way and they edify the body. Those things don't matter as much as the gift of love, which is the product of considering one another in the church. If you don't have a friend, you haven't served or helped. What Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians, is he honestly saying that considering others in the body is more important than tongues, prophecy, understanding, faith, generosity, and even martyrdom? Yeah. That's absolutely what he's saying there. He's making the point in, in as clear a way as he can make it. You don't love one another, you're worthless to the body. You're not, you're not even part of the family. And the danger there is you're going to get to heaven and say, oh, I did all this stuff. And the Lord's going to say, no, you didn't. You didn't do anything. You didn't even join the family. That's terrifying. Don't do that. I admonish you. Don't do that. Do the heart work. Do the hard time of drawing near, holding fast, and considering other people in the body. God's going to add to our numbers. God already has. What if, verse 28, if Moses' sins were punishable by death, what do you think is going to happen to people that disobey Jesus? How do you think that's going to work for you? This isn't about backsliding, by the way. This isn't about screwing up and sinning. We got lots of people in the family that screw up. I'm the first one. Paul said, I'm the chief of all sinners. This is not about sin. This is about being part of the kingdom or not. It's really simple. Verse 29, how much worse <laughs> is it going to be? What's worse than dying without mercy? I don't know. And the only thing they give you there, I like this, is just like, what do you think is going to happen? They just leave it up to the reader. You can live life for yourself, knowing God's will and not doing it. Good luck with that plan. See how that works out for you. Or you can give up your plan, live life with the body, and watch God do wonders through the congregation. Verse 29, trampled. You're walking your own way. You're just stepping on it. Counted as common. You're worshiping other things that are more valuable than Jesus himself. Insulted. It actually takes it up to the, you're an insult. Ignoring, slighting the Holy Spirit. This is in the present tense. It's what we see in every person that ignores those callings of God. If you ask somebody on a date, like God invites us into relationship, and you say, I don't have time for you, that, let's be honest, that's kind of an insult. I'm working on myself right now. What an insult. Do you really want to date that person? So when God says, come in and join my, walk with me. Walk before me. Be part of that community. And you say, I got other things to do. I got better ministries. I'm, I'm going to go prophesy instead. Good luck with that plan. It's an insult by implication. It's actually a sin because you're putting yourself over God. It's so much better to just receive the gift of grace and be blessed because God tells you to do that. Let go of the anxiousness and let God just go in your life. The Son of God here, verse 29, is not named. That's interesting. And the Spirit of the Lord is here. So there's actually God, the Son of God, and the Spirit of the Lord, a kind of another Trinity reference. And then verse 30, For we know him who said vengeance. Vengeance there, the word there is for administered justice. I think sometimes in English we think of vengeance as like a movie vengeance, like somebody's really angry because they hurt their kid or something. Vengeance there is an administered justice. Administered justice is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, and again, the Lord will judge his people. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Don't take what Hebrews is saying lightly. 
And verse 19, therefore, reminders that God has boundaries <laughs> and a reminder that God has the final say as to whether or not we're doing the right thing. The Old Testament, this is super clear. It's written out in a law. So with the Old Testament, we actually have God saying it once. And through Jesus, we have God saying it twice. That's two or more witnesses. God's told us what to do. The reference here, the quotes are all from Deuteronomy 32. I just want to read Deuteronomy 32 because this was put in place with Moses. Administered justice or vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand and the things to come hasten upon them. Even when this was first said, it was said in reference to things in the future. That's kind of interesting giving our context in Hebrews. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. And when he sees that their power is gone and that there is no one remaining bond or free, now I see that I, he, and, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound, I heal. Nor is there anyone who can deliver from my hand. So all part of the same idea. This verse inspired uh, Jonathan Edwards in 1741 to write one of the great sermons. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he's talking to the church. It's one of the great evangelical messages out there. People joined the family because of this message. In droves, they came in. When we teach the word honestly, people come towards it. They don't run from it. If you get done with a conversation and people are trying to get the heck away from you, that's not always the enemy. Sometimes it's just you. Jonathan Edwards, I'm just going to read a quote from this. You can read the whole sermon. It's actually not that long. But this is going to, I hope this lands like a rock on your soul. Your wickedness makes you as if you were heavy as lead, and you tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. Jonathan Edwards, the default is we're pushing towards hell. And again, this is what you call fire and brimstone teaching. And if, you, and if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution and your care and your prudence, your nice haircut, your best contrivance, and all your righteousness, you'd have no more influence to hold you up than to keep you out of hell. You hang from a spider's web that might stop you from a falling rock. Only God's hands keep you out of hell. Take God seriously. We don't do a lot of fire and brimstone anymore. Maybe we should. You know, say that. Like The point of the sermon, if you go through kind of the whole outline, is to pay attention to who does the judging. Whose wrath is it? Are you the one that gets to decide what's right and wrong? Are you the one that gets to decide what God's people are going to do next? Are you the shepherd? Who's God, whose wrath is it? The utter intolerance of sin has to be part of any movement where people are just getting away from sin. The degree of wrath required to completely amend your life of all sin. The significance of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and the everlasting nature of both the wrath and the forgiveness. And, 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 and then five, the, the sermon says, be certain you are going to die. So we haven't really changed how we sometimes present the gospel to people that much. We're all going to die. We're all sinners. You're a sinner too. And there's nothing that figures our, that covers your sin like the blood of Jesus. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It's urgent. Pay attention. Here's how this goes. In the knowledge of these things, we say something like, Lord, thank you. I accept your gift. Forgive me of my sins. I'll serve you the rest of my life. You're all I got. That's the prayer. I don't know about you, but I didn't just pray that once. I pray it every day. Lord, thank you. Forgive me of my sins. You're all I got. Here in Hebrews 10, we do see a little fire and brimstone, so I just wanted to share classic fire and brimstone with you. Verse 32 Recall the former days. There's a but at verse 42. So you get the wrath of God, hell is coming, but then he puts a button there. But, I love buts in the Bible. Buts are good, especially when they're preceded by God's horrible wrath that's coming at us. But, but recall the former days in which you were illuminated to be lit up. You endured a great struggle with sufferings, 
partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. People came and robbed their houses because they were Christians now, so it's okay to take all their stuff. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Wow. Brethren, count it as joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. Let patience have her perfect perfection worked out, and that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Take some joy in this. Yeah, God's not going to tolerate nonsense. But oh, God bless the people that submit to their Lord because he has amazing grace that he sheds out. Verse 35, don't cast away your confidence. It's your great reward. Don't forsake the assembling. It's the prize. But I need more. I want more of a prize. Okay, good luck with that. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that after your... You have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. What's the promise? The promise is you will endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy 2. That's the promise. James 5.11, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have the perseverance of Job and you've seen the end. And the Lord, that is the very compassions and the merciful. That's the reward. We get to be merciful. Forgive others as you've been forgiven. Have I been forgiven? Yeah. Is it easy for me to forgive? No, but when I remember what I got from the Lord, suddenly it gets to be really easy. When the Lord says you'll be judged as you judge, it's really easy to just stop judging entirely. That's a rational decision there. If it's outside the word of God, I'm not going to make a judgment call on that because I, I know what God can judge me on. Verse 37. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Je that's Jesus. Jesus is coming. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anybody draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's a quotation. He's citing Habakkuk. Behold the proud, their soul is not upright, but the just shall live by faith. What is faith? It's trusting that something God said would be there is there, and you act upon it. Faith is known in its action. You don't really trust the chair if you don't sit on it. But you have faith in the chair when you sit down and you expect it will hold you up. Have faith that drawing near, holding fast, and considering one another so that we can stir up love and good works, that we can exhort one another in a family-like environment, have faith that when you sit on that, it'll work. Now, that doesn't mean to sit on each other, but it does mean to just put your faith in that. Trust, trust that that's God's work at hand. Trust that it's a miracle that you and I get along. That God does that. He, he takes strong-willed people and brings them into his kingdom. He takes not-so-strong-willed people and he brings them into his kingdom. And somehow or another, we all work it out. We're not biologically family, but man, we love each other. We love the heck out of each other. This is used by Paul when he writes Romans and Galatians. It's one of the reasons why people think Paul wrote Hebrews is verse 37, 38. It's a very similar idea. Each of those uses, though, have a very different emphasis. Here the context is about living, surviving, and enduring with other people. And that the just are justified as they live by faith. In Romans, it's about justification. And in Galatians, it's about faith. But here it's about how we live. And the emphasis goes on the how we live. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That, friends, is not a new idea. The writer of Hebrews is getting that straight out of Mark 8.38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes to his glory of his Father with the holy angels. So I've gone after the lone stars. Let's go after people that are just cowardly. You don't want to talk about Jesus because you're scared of what people will think. You're drawing back from our verse, right? If anybody draws back, if you don't lean into this, then you don't, God's not really your God, right? But that idea of like just... I appreciate what Mike shared, just that idea of praying with people, being open to it, that we live our life with strength and courage. We don't back down. The culture can adjust to our love of Jesus versus us adjusting to their reproach of Jesus. We're not afraid. That said, we're also not rude. 
We're considerate with one another as future family members. We don't push something at somebody to the point where they're uncomfortable. But we do invite them. Come walk with me. Man, I want you to come to meet my family. I want you to come home and meet my mom and dad. I really want you to meet my dad. That's how I should say it, right? Our father in heaven, he's somebody you should meet. Come meet him. You're going to love him. But we are not those who draw back to perdition, verse 39. What is perdition? In the Greek, it means ruin or destruction. In the English, it means a hot mess. We don't draw back to the hot mess. We don't draw back to hell. Forget that. I've been cowardly. I don't care to be cowardly anymore. I've been timid with my faith. I don't care to go back to that. I've been without a family. And I don't ever care to go back to that. I want to be with my family. The rest of the world can deal with that. And those boundaries can be clear. So some people, <laughs> though, but we are not those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. I just love that. I love that he says, but we are not. Again, he brings it back to the plural. And he's like, like some of those people that disregard, but folks, we're not that people. And the Hebrews writer is being really clear here. We're not those people. We're people who believe unto the saving of our soul. And we have great confidence in the hope of our salvation because we have great faith that God never breaks his promises. We will rest in the refuge God's made for us. We will sit on that chair with zero doubt in our heads that the chair will hold us up. So we draw near, we hold fast, we consider one another. If you're a believer in God, then do what he says. Then we're going to go on. The rest of Hebrews sits on these points. So that's okay that this week we kind of took two weeks to cover Hebrews chapter 10. Chapter 11 is going to be all about faith, how you draw near to God. Chapter 12 is going to be all about hope, how you hold fast with God. And chapter 13 is going to be all about how to love and how to build relationships with other people. Awesome end of this book. Like, this is why Hebrews is Hebrews. Like, again, you get to the Bible and every book you study, I feel like it's my favorite book. Uh, but Hebrews, man, you get all the quotables the next three weeks. Is you get all those quotes that people take in because these are the ways we're supposed to do it. So these are the verses we memorize. Um, and chapters 1 through 9 don't often get memorized. And neither is the we have an angry God thing. That's not usually memorized very much. So let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we just take your will and we pray that it's done lord there is no god like you there is no one more worthy there is no gift greater there is no sacrifice that covers our sin in any kind of way like yours does lord you're our only hope all things have passed away but you remain Lord, we celebrate you. Lord, we just take joy in you and we, that you gave us permission to just gather and be joyful. That your will for humanity is agape. It is to walk with you, to walk with each other, and to do it in love. So Lord, we take those commands not lightly but seriously. It's a tough thing to, to joyfully take something seriously, but Lord, we just do it with all gladness of heart. May we not draw back from it at all, but may we just lean into it. May we have fun with it. May we enjoy it. Lord, may we not apologize or hold back, but Lord, help us to have such a full heart that all we can do is invite people to walk with us, to draw people into our family. Lord, we're going to meet next week. I want to pray ahead for that as we just kind of lay out this vision for a church and where we're at. And Lord, you timed it all out perfectly. You know I didn't plan that out, but Lord, we're just reading it. We get to talk about it. We could just be a family together. What a gift. Lord, we pray for our not just ourselves, but we pray for this town. We pray for White Bear next door. We pray for the Twin Cities. We pray for Minnesota. I pray for our country. Lord, we lift it all up. You're a mighty God, and I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know how you're going to use us. I don't know what's coming next, Lord, but I don't have to. I can just have faith in you, that your way is greater than mine. And Lord, we all lift up our spirits together, Lord, in unity and in peace. Lord, help us to love one another and help us to do what you've commanded us to do. Lord, be close to us. Fill this home. Lord, it's all yours. It's your place. Be here and make it holy. Make this meal we're about to eat, make it holy. Um, make, it, make our friendships and our relationships, Lord, just sanctify them and purify them and cleanse them that they, can be, they too can be holy. Lord, help us to bear with one another and to bear each other's burdens. And we take it seriously, Lord. We know it's a command. But we take that command with such love and joy and we're happy to do it. So, Lord, be with us. Be with us today. 
Bless the food in Jesus' name. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.